My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 32 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with Dr. Simon Ruffel, who shares his recent ayahuasca research findings on epigenetics and the healing of trauma. And we were looking at mental health outcomes and epigenetic changes. Um, so, so what we found was there were statistically significant decreases when people drank ayahuasca in both the short and the long term in depression and anxiety. And we also found improvements or increases, I should say, in self-compassion and mindfulness. And global distress also decreased. Um, and for all of these findings, it was both in the short term and the long term. We were looking at the amount of childhood trauma that people had experienced to see whether or not this mediated any of the changes. And we found that um, people with a greater degree of trauma in their childhood had more significant decreases in depression. Um, so that was quite interesting. And again, we found that the mystical experience um, seems to mediate changes in depression as well. So the greater the degree of mystical experience, the greater the decrease in depression. Well, what is your definition of ayahuasca? You know, when, so when you say, was it just due to the ayahuasca? Well, I mean, what do you mean by ayahuasca? Do you mean the, the chemicals in ayahuasca? No. The way that they affect the receptors in your brain? In which case, I think maybe that's a bit of a reductionist, a reductionist, a reductionistic way to look at ayahuasca. Or is ayahuasca everything? Is it, you know, being with the curandero? Is it singing the Icaros, having the Icaros sung at you? When you're in the jungle, is it being in a retreat center? Is it being completely unplugged? One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is that I get to have conversations with really cool people in the psychedelic space doing some really amazing work. And Dr. Simon Ruffel certainly fits into that category. And he's actually become a really sweet new friend in my life. And so I was first introduced to Dr. Simon Ruffel through another very special human being, Carlos Tanner from the Ayahuasca Foundation. And I interviewed Carlos Tanner for episode number 13 of this podcast, and I loved that conversation as well. So definitely worth listening to if you haven't yet. And Carlos was sharing with me some of the research that's happening in collaboration with the Ayahuasca Foundation. And these research findings that Simon is going to share in this episode were just published in Frontiers in Psychiatry. And so the article is called Ceremonial Ayahuasca in Amazonian Retreats, Mental Health and Epigenetic Outcomes from a Six-Month Naturalistic Study. And I'll include that link in the show notes. So Dr. Simon Ruffel works in psychedelic research with a focus on ayahuasca and has spent the last five years conducting research into the use of ayahuasca in the Peruvian Amazon. He also works as a psychiatrist at the Maudsley Hospital in South London, as well as works as a senior research associate at King's College London, looking at the use of psilocybin in treatment-resistant depression. He's currently completing a PhD looking at the use of ayahuasca in the Amazon and associated mental health outcomes. 
And in this episode, Simon shares about these recent research findings. And as you'll hear, we laugh quite a bit in this episode. And this is actually take two on our recording. And you'll hear more about why we did a second take in this conversation. And there were sections where I normally would have edited them out. Like when I'm saying something that's just like a verbal blunder, I would normally remove that. But I just left it in as more of a behind the scenes of a podcast episode. And so we joke with each other in this conversation quite a bit, which I honestly just really enjoy. My favorite podcast episodes are the ones where I'm able to just connect with a sense of humor in the conversation. So you'll definitely hear that coming through in this episode for sure. And I just loved every minute of this conversation I got to have with Simon. Now, before I dive in, I just want to share a couple of very personal updates. I'm going to be putting out interviews once every 10 to 14 days instead of once a week for the next couple of months. I'm going through some really big life transitions right now, and I feel like my spirit is just craving more inward time. In this episode, Simon refers to drinking ayahuasca as like spring cleaning for the mind, and I'm just really feeling that right now. It just feels like overhaul time on a lot of different levels. You know, some of you know, I'm coming out of a 10 year long marriage. I've also just been working really hard for really long time and getting some significant projects off the ground, including this podcast. And there's a part of me that's like, no, you need to put out an episode every week and stay consistent. But the wisdom of my heart is super clear and the medicine is calling me to do some deep dive work right now so that I can slow down and pause and go within and hold space for some deep level restructuring. And sometimes we really do need to let things fall apart in order to come back together in a new way that feels more cohesive and even more aligned. And inherent in times of big transitions, there's a lot of letting go. And so I really just need to let myself really touch the heart of grief right now that's inherent in that letting go and give myself enough breathing room and space to really do that. And when I'm at these big turning points in my life where it really feels like the ending of an old chapter and the starting of a new one, this is the time that I just really feel the call to go within, you know, to go into the darkness and open my inner eye and hold the vision for what I want my life to look like on the other side of this cocoon of metamorphosis that I'm stepping into right now and really imprint the field with my inner vision so that I can step back out in deeper alignment with my purpose and my why and really fill up my cup so that I can be more effective for the long haul and be able to show up in the fullness of my offerings, which I really do have some pretty amazing projects in the pipeline right now that I cannot wait to announce and share with you. And, you know, sometimes I really do feel the pressure of being outwardly visible all the time and consistently present online, but it's just not sustainable without counterbalancing it with more inward time. And so I just need to trust the wisdom of my heart in this process. And this is also what it means to embody psychedelic leadership. This is what that means to me. And I'm doing the best to really embody and practice what I stand for and what I teach and what I value. And I value balance and I really value my health and my body as a creative vessel. And so I do need to prioritize my physical, mental and emotional well-being for the next few months. 
And thank you so much for supporting me in that and for understanding. So my mantra right now is that the most productive thing I can do is rest and go deep within and go deep with the medicine. And I need enough time on the other side of these deeper dives to really integrate those experiences. And I'm also really inspired to put out more solo episodes. But again, you know, they they really do take a lot of focus and effort and I need to fill up my cup. My wellspring of inspiration is just feeling a little tad low right now. And I have about four weeks left in my mastermind program, and it's been going incredible. It's been going really amazing, and I've been learning an enormous amount. And I also need some space to integrate what I've been learning through leading this group of 32 amazing human beings. So it's just this time to pause and rest and reflect and fill up my cup so that I can step back out feeling rejuvenated and more clear, really feeling in alignment with my inspiration channel. All that to say, episodes will be coming out at a little bit of a slower pace. They will keep coming, just not every single week because I'm just going to go for quality over quantity right now. Also, come September, I'm going to be in a little bit more of a nomadic mode. I'm exploring some new communities and it looks like I'll be coming to Austin to check out the scene over there. I feel like it's really just such a happening place right now. And I'm really just feeling the call to immerse in a couple of different community scenes. And I'll also be speaking at the Meet Delic Psychedelic Conference in Vegas, November 6th and 7th, which I am so excited about. I'm speaking on a microdosing panel, and I also have a solo speaking spot where I'm going to be exploring the intersection between creative problem solving and psychedelics. And so I would love to meet you there. If you feel like hanging out in person, I'll include a link in the show notes if you want to get a ticket to attend and there will be a code for you to receive a discount on your ticket. All right. What else did I want to touch on? Oh, yes. If you have not yet received my four playlists for psychedelic journeys and beyond, you can swipe that on my website at livefreelauraD.com, where you can also swipe my free eight day microdosing course. I am going to be launching another mastermind and the application is still up on the last landing page. And if you want to get on my list to attend my next mastermind program, feel free to fill out the application. It's under the microdosing mastermind tab on my website. All right, I'm going to be leaving you off with this really super sweet song by Puentes. I love this whole album called Americua, and the song is called Cantataita. It's such a beautiful song, and their whole album is so beautiful, and I'll include those links in the show notes as well. All right, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Simon Ruffle exploring the research findings around ayahuasca, epigenetics, mental health, and the healing of trauma. So are you saying that people don't think you're a doctor because you look younger? I think it's a mix of looking younger and wearing silly trousers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is true. I have a I have, I have a love for patterned trousers, um, but I think it's 
a mix of those two things that in in a and e whenever i get cool to see i get cool to see someone it's um either i either get asked if i'm a medical student or if it happened last week actually where i, I got called and i got to the the nurses station and everyone assumed that I was um, that I was a member of the patient's family. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm I'm here to see the patient because you called me. Oh um, my! And then it was a lot of apologies, but I take it as a compliment. I'm not. Uh, I'm I'm pleased not to kind of look like the stand doctor. I guess. <laughs> no, and that's a good thing. And you bridge the worlds so beautifully. And I'd love to dive in, Doctor Simon Ruffle. So I'd love to know more <laughs> of your background. I think you're just in such a unique position in this space with just bridging, you know, the Shipibo tradition with a background in psychiatry, and you're putting out some fascinating research. And I can't wait to dive into that with you. But let's just start a little bit with your background and how you found yourself bridging these two realities so beautifully. Yeah, sure. I mean, to be completely honest, I'm not entirely sure how I ended up in this position, um, but I can I can talk you through I can talk you through what happened. Um, so yeah, so I, I've been working as a doctor in the NHS, um, for a few years and I decided to, to have a little bit of a break. Uh, and during that time I was doing some work in Uganda. Um, and yeah, it was really, it was really emotionally, really emotionally taxing. As you can imagine, I, I was working with some child soldiers, um, and I decided to, to have a proper break from all of medicine, um, and was traveling through South and Central America and, uh, and I met somebody who was was training as a curandero at the time, and uh, we were about the same age, we were about the same grade in different in our different types of medicine. Him in plant medicine, and me in uh, in Western medicine. And it wasn't the first time I'd, I'd come across ayahuasca. I'd been aware of it for ages, um, but especially in South America, as as I'm sure you know, everyone was you know it was frequently frequently spoken about. And whenever I mentioned that I was a psychiatrist, people would would uh, would come back at me saying, "Well, yeah, Western psychiatry doesn't really do anything. You know, it's it's not very good. Uh, you should try drinking ayahuasca. Have you come across ayahuasca?" And uh, so I was really right, waiting for for the right time to try it. Um, and when I met this this curandero, um, he invited me to come to to Peru with him to to drink ayahuasca. And so I went with him and I did drink it and I was completely, completely blown away by the effect that it had both on myself and on the other people that were there on the retreat. And I was really fortunate that at that time, um, Carlos, who runs the Ayahuasca Foundation, was, um, he was, he'd had this idea uh, to build a research center. Um, and he took me around to show the kind of the site that they were going to build it. Um, and he was saying, but we still don't have, we still don't have any researchers. And I was actually doing research in Uganda previously. Um, and so I kind of thought, well, I mean, maybe, maybe I could start doing research into this. This seems fascinating. Um, and so I got back to, into the UK and, uh, together with, uh, with my mate, uh, Nigel Netsband, who's a psychologist, we started, um, looking into research into psychedelics. And we were really surprised that at that time, there was barely any research at all looking at ayahuasca in retreat centers, um, based in the Amazon rainforest. There was a fair amount of, of research uh, in South America, uh, looking at ayahuasca churches like UDV or Santa Daime, um, but very, yeah, pretty much none looking at retreat centers and none in a Shabibo setting. So, so yeah, we decided that we wanted to research ayahuasca. 
Um, and we designed a study, tried to get some funding. Unsurprisingly, nobody would fund us, which we kind of, which we kind of expected. Um, so we actually self-funded that first study. Um, and we got some we got some nice results, um, and so I shared. Uh, I was enjoying sharing that research with the with the scientific community, and it uh, led to me going to King's College London, start working in psychedelic research there. Uh, unfortunately, we then did get some funding, um, actually from the Medical Research Council, which is part of the UK government, believe it or not. Um, and that was that was the money that funded our later study, uh, which I will tell you all about in a sec, I'm sure. Okay, sweet. Well, let's go to the first study. What were you researching in the first study and what did you find? Yeah, so we were looking at the, um, the effects that ayahuasca had on personality. Um, so we assessed personality using something called the NeoPI, um, which is basically a massive questionnaire. Um, it's really commonly used um, to assess personality. And it looks at personality in five different domains, um, openness, conscientiousness, uh, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Um, and we were also looking at the degree to which participants underwent a mystical experience. Um, so that's whether they felt connected to God, whether they felt outside of time, at one with uh, the universe. Um, and we found that participants had significant decreases in how neurotic they were immediately after the ayahuasca retreats. And that that was maintained six months later. And we also found that participants became more agreeable immediately after the retreats. And that was also maintained six months later. And the, the degree to which they experienced a mystical experience seemed to mediate these results. And so the greater the mystical experience, the greater the decrease in, neur in neuroticism we found. Okay. And so what, how is neuroticism expressed? How is yes. neuroticism expressed? I'll say that again. Um, so how is neuroticism expressed? Because like, yeah. And I guess like, how neurotic am I? <laughs> Seeing as you did that three times, I'm going to say probably quite neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this would be a really good time to tell everyone that this is a take two. So I'm going to say that you're also fairly neurotic. <laughs> and too shaved, by the way. I was wondering. Oh, oh snap. And, and we just we did a take two because Simon wasn't totally happy with the way that he defined epigenetics. And I think that that's fair that as a professional, he does want to show up offering accurate information. But unfortunately, I won't be releasing the first episode, which I tried to convince Simon to let me do because we laughed so much, especially <laughs> towards the end. I was just cracking up that whole time. And I'm just going to also leave all of this in too, because I'm also overcoming my own neuroticism. Is perfectionism a part of neuroticism? I feel like they must be correlated. Yeah, you know, I think um, neuroticism... It's an umbrella term that encompasses so many things. I think it's important to say, you know, neuroticism is not necessarily bad, you know. So, and then this is one thing that came up in the research is it seems like a good thing to decrease neuroticism. And, it, you know, it probably is for, for many different um for many different reasons. So you don't want to be an anxious mess. You don't want to be having to repeat every podcast you do multiple times. You know, you need right. to you need to be able to function. But at the same time, I wonder, you know, we don't want people to become, we don't want ourselves to become completely unneurotic. Right. Because neuroticism is, that's the thing that kind of made me, made, you know, made me want to make sure that I got the definition of epigenetics right and made my explanation happy. It's the thing that 
drives you to run to the bus, you know, when you're slightly late. If you were, if you had no neuroticism, I wonder, I'm not saying this because I know, it's just a, a thought that we had, an interesting discussion point. We, how much would we want neuroticism to decrease? Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and something interesting that's, that's worth, think, worth thinking about. Okay, so neuroticism mm. was lowered, agreeableness was uh, higher. What about openness? Yeah, so we found what's called trend levels, uh, increases in openness. Um, so that basically means that people did become more open, um, but not uh, statistically, uh, to a statistically significant level. And that's not because people, um, because ayahuasca had less of an effect on openness, or at least that's not what I took from the results. What it was is that most of the participants who had flown out to the jungle to drink ayahuasca in the first place already scored really, really highly uh, on openness, unsurprisingly, really. And so there was less of an increase because they were already pretty much at ceiling level. Um, So I think that's more of a limitation with the measure that we used. Mm. Yeah, rather than kind of saying people became less open. And we know from other research that um, openness increases. Well, there's some other research looking at ayahuasca um, and openness Mm. uh, that shows that it does increase. And again, uh, in psilocybin as well, the McLean studies um, show that other psychedelics can improve, uh, increase openness too. Right. Is that the same study? I know Roland Griffiths did a study out of Johns Hopkins that one psilocybin journey can fundamentally change the personality trait of openness, which openness tends to to decrease as we get older. And so we become more rigid. And that that category of openness is really interesting to me because I'm you know studying creativity studies in graduate school. And there's a very strong overlap between openness to experience and creative thinking, creative problem solving, and a big overlap with psychedelics which I'm convincing you to allow me to collaborate with you guys so that we can start studying ayahuasca and creativity. But we'll, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> yeah, another interesting thing with, with the personality as well is that, so you mentioned about openness um, decreasing as we get older, which is true. Um, but also personality, according to the researchers in the past called Costa McRae, personality is supposed to be fixed about the age of 30. So... Up until the age of 30, you know, you can still have quite dramatic changes in who you are and your character. But above the age of 30, unless something major happens, like, I don't know, like um, the death of a loved one or something like that, something that might jolt you, personality is pretty fixed. And what we found was that in our sample group, everyone apart from two people were over the age of 30. And we still found these changes, which is the same as what was found in, um, in Roland and Catherine McLean's research in psilocybin, that the majority of the participants were over 30, um, which seems to be suggesting that plant medicine can make changes uh, to personality after, after this time period, which is, which is super interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, so what has your research recently been finding? What is the th- So if you've done three rounds now, you had the first round that was looking at the the personality traits and then did you do a second round of research yeah i mean so we've actually we've actually published five papers now um so the personality was the first one um, and we did a qualitative piece looking at that as well as well as the quantitative so that's semi-structured interviews um and then we've yeah we've done a few more smaller ones but this is the next the next big one um and so in this piece we were we we're in the same setting, so we were still in the um, uh, Shibibo-style retreats in the Peruvian Amazon, um, a research centre called Riospo, uh, which is uh, linked to MAPS and then the Ayahuasca Foundation. And we were looking at mental health outcomes and epigenetic changes. Um, 
So, so what we found was there were statistically significant decreases when people drank ayahuasca in both the short and the long term in depression and anxiety. And that's, you know, that's not, no one was surprised by these results. That's, that's what you'd expect to, what you'd expect to find. And we also found improvements or increases, I should say, in uh, self-compassion uh, and mindfulness and global distress also decreased. Um, and for all of these findings, it was both in the short term and the long term. We were looking at the amount of childhood trauma that people had experienced to see whether or not this mediated any of the changes. And we found that um, people with a greater degree of trauma in their childhood had more significant decreases in depression. Um, so that was quite interesting. And again, we found that the mystical experience um, seems to mediate changes in depression as well. So the greater the degree of mystical experience, the greater the decrease in depression. We were looking also looking at memory, and we found that uh, people who had uh, traumatic memories perceived them in a less negative way, and that was maintained six months after the ayahuasca retreats too. Um, we also looked at epigenetics, um, and so we collected saliva samples um, immediately before people drank ayahuasca, and um, immediately afterwards, um, but we didn't do a six-month follow-up um, because, of, because of costs. And we found, so epigenetics, sorry, is uh, the study of um, looking at... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's it. Let's take the whole podcast again. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. With my okay, we're doing this. So what is epigenetics? How do we define epigenetics, Simon? Um, I'm glad you asked. Epigenetics is the study of the, um, the way in which DNA is expressed. Um, so... It's not to do with um, with DNA changing. It's to do with the way that genes change their expression. And we were looking at how that is affected by ayahuasca. So what we were looking at was the way that ayahuasca changes the expression of certain genes in the DNA. So not changing the actual genes, not changing the, the DNA, and not changing the DNA code, but just the way in which they're expressed. And so we were looking at a few different genes and we found an increase in methylation. So that's the addition of methyl groups, which is one of the ways that the epigenetics can change the way the genes are expressed, to a gene called sigma-1. And sigma-1 is a gene that is involved in, in many things, including uh, neuroplasticity, uh, so the ability of the brain to make new connections. Um, and it's also hypothesized to be involved in, in traumatic memory, in traumatic memory recall. So the idea is that it might allow people to access the very difficult memories that they've that they have um, and to to frame them in a slightly different way um, to to see them to decrease the emotional charge or to change the emotional charge um, so that was i mean it was a really really interesting study we can't i need to say that we can't draw firm conclusions from this because when you study uh, epigenetics you need to have a sample group that's kind of in the hundreds and our sample group was 66 um but it does suggest that something is going on there um, something really interesting um and so we, I'm, I'm pleased to say that we actually just got some more funding uh, to continue looking at this um, and to also look at some other genes as well um to kind of to widen the search but that and that was the first time that um, psychedelics and epigenetics have been looked at together. Um, so for me, that was really the most interesting part of this study. Mm -hmm. are, are we only talking that this was just from ayahuasca? There was no talk therapy, psychotherapy after that this gene changed its expression just from drinking ayahuasca is what mm -hmm. you think. 
I mean, we definitely can't say that, and because because the the studies that we do are observational in nature, uh, so they're not controlled. Um, so normally, when you do research uh, in the labs, you try and control for as many things as possible. Um, obviously, there's there's always some confounding variables, other things that can that can get in the way. Um, but you no, know, in in answer to your question, we can't say it's due just to ayahuasca. It may well have been due to, or it could have been due to being in the jungle. It could have been due to uh, being unplugged from everything. Um, some people underwent preparation and integration if they decided to do that themselves. Most people didn't, so it could have been something to do with that as well. I think when we're thinking about this. Because it's something I get asked quite a lot, you know, about the confounding variables in observational research. It's interesting to think, well, what is your definition of ayahuasca? You know, when so when you say, was it just due to the ayahuasca? Well, I mean, what do you mean by ayahuasca? Do you mean the, the chemicals in ayahuasca? Um, the way that they affect the receptors in your brain? In which case, I think maybe that's a bit of a reductionist a reductionist, a reductionistic way to look at ayahuasca. Or is ayahuasca everything? Is it... You know, being with the curandero, is it singing the Icaros, having the Icaros sung at you when you're in the jungle? Is it being in a retreat centre? Is it being completely unplugged? And so, although we can't specifically say it's as a result of, of ayahuasca, the brew, I would I would argue that the the one of the beauties of ayahuasca is that it's 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 the full package. It's a holistic thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so whatever the ayahuasca experience was, it seems like it could have been having this effect. Um, we're hoping to start doing some research, looking at ayahuasca um, in the labs here in London. Um, and I really hope we'll be looking at epigenetics in that. So we should be able to tell um, in the future whether or not it was the chemicals in ayahuasca. Um, but for now, we just know that it seems like something's changing when people attend these ayahuasca retreats. Interesting. And so you said the retelling of the story, it's almost like there's a shift in narrative around the trauma that happened. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So in this research, we also did um, qualitative research. So that's um, non-numerical. It's semi-structured interviews is what we did. And then we analyzed them to, to look for themes. And it's something called a thematic analysis. And what we found in this in this research was that people seem to change the way that they thought of these traumatic experiences. So obviously it's not that they, the traumatic memory itself changed, but their perception of the emotional content seems to change. So a classic thing that we would find is that um, if somebody experienced abuse, um, they might have thought, oh my God, like what did I do wrong in order to, to be abused? Like why... Why was I so repulsive or horrendous that, that I got abused? And there'll be a lot of guilt, guilt, a lot of shame, things like that. And what we found was that a lot of people seem to perceive that abuse in a different way. So the classic thing would be that they would view their abuser as somebody who was who was damaged, you know, somebody who who needed help, um, who did something, you know, probably unforgivable. Um, but it wasn't the individual's fault. And they could almost see from that point of view that it was this person's fault, this other person, and they could forgive themselves that, that it had happened um, and were no longer blaming themselves for the experience that they'd gone through. So almost kind of reframing what had happened, that seemed to be um, quite often, not all the time, but quite often what was going on. 
Interesting. And so we think that the change in the sigma one specifically is somehow correlated to the processing of trauma. Potentially. I think it's it's too early to say at the moment, um, but that definitely is something that could be happening. Um, and it's really exciting if, if that is, because it's, it's a biological change that could be happening as a result of ayahuasca. But at the moment, we need to focus on getting more data um, so we can explore it further. So no firm conclusions yet, but it does suggest that this is a potential mechanism and one that we should definitely be looking at more. So in terms of epigenetics, I know we've talked about this a little bit before. And are you familiar with uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton's work, The Biology of Belief? Yeah, vaguely, yeah. Okay, well, then I won't ask you a bunch of questions about your perspective on his work in particular. But my understanding is that <laughs> the environment influences our genetic expression and that genes can get upregulated or downregulated and that the, that upregulation and downregulation have an influence on our health. Is that generally true and is it immediate? Like how long do these changes mm. take place over? And then the last time we spoke, you also talked about um, intergenerational trauma and some really interesting studies there. So any direction you want to run with this yeah sure so yeah so with epigenetics the idea is that the environment you know very simply put influences the way in which genes are expressed and you know that doesn't have to be major traumas that can be just the environment in general and it's also it's not all genes it's uh, it appears to just be kind of quite a small number of genes that seem to be affected um, or kind of be sensitive to epigenetic changes um and when it comes to intergenerational trauma, that's that's a really interesting one. So there are some studies looking at things like the uh, the Dutch um, hunger famine um, in the Second World War, and there was a there was a massive shortage of food going into going into uh, going into Holland uh, during uh, a period of about I think it was about a year, and the way in which people's genes were expressed express, changed. Um, or some of them changed as a result of this, uh, you know, this very traumatic experience and the shortage of food. What they found is that people who were involved in that famine passed their genes down to the next generation, and they passed those genes that had been changed, they, they'd been either turned on or turned off to the next generation as well. And this can sometimes be positive, this can sometimes be negative, Um but there are in really interesting implications uh, for this work. And epigenetics is it's a really, really exciting field, actually. Um, and it's not just uh, to do with psychiatry and psychology. Um, people are beginning to investigate new treatments for cancer um, and trying to target genes that are either turned on or turned off, upregulated or downregulated um, in a, yeah, hopefully, hopefully new ways of treating some of these awful diseases. Mm hmm. Do you think it's possible that ayahuasca can help put an end to intergenerational trauma? Oh, wow. I mean, that's that's a huge question. Um, you know, I don't think that ayahuasca is a magic bullet. Um, I don't think I don't think there is a magic bullet. I think that the research that we've done shows that it potentially could help with that for sure. Um, we need to investigate that further. For me personally. Yeah, absolutely. I think from my own personal experience, from seeing other people, um, other people's experiences, that it could absolutely help with intergenerational trauma, for sure. And I know that from a slightly different perspective, the Shabibos, um, when I've spoken to them about this, also believe that. 
Um, I think we need to be careful about jumping the gun too much and, you know, saying that this is this is going to be the end of intergenerational trauma. Um, and I don't think that will be the case. But absolutely, I think that it's showing promise in research, or it's, it's suggested that it might help in research so far. Um, but from my own personal experiences um, and anecdotal evidence, um, I definitely think that that it could be an effective treatment for that. Mm, interesting. Okay. I'm curious because you come from such a strong Western psychiatry background, being, you know, on the path of also training with this Shipibo lineage, where do you find that the Western world and your perceptual worldview just doesn't sort of click into place with the shamanic perspective? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, you know, it's funny. So we've been doing this research now for six years and um when I first started doing it, um, I would try and try and explain everything through a Western lens. Um, so, if a Kurandaro was saying uh, that they kind of removed some negative energy, uh, or there was kind of a dark spirit stuck to someone, I would try and translate that uh, as in, oh, well, that's just another way of describing depression. You know, that's a um, an indigenous way of thinking about impression, uh, depression, and try and try and phrase it like that. The more that I've been involved with this work, the harder and harder that gets. And there are there are some things that you can um, describe from a Western lens, but there are other things that just don't, that just don't fit into that. When it comes to things like plant dietas, um, so the way that, uh, that a lot of uh, Shabibo Karandero is trained by, by dieting plants and incorporating the spirit of that plant into them, that is very, very difficult to describe through, for me personally, through a Western point of view. Some of the darker sides of, of uh, shamanism as well, and specifically with the Shibibos, um, such as Bruharia, um, kind of black magic, things that aren't as accepted in the kind of the Western perception of ayahuasca. That, I don't know, what is that? How do you explain that through, through a Western lens? And um, I'm definitely not saying that I have any of these answers. In fact, I, I 100% don't. But there are times when it comes to this research um, and working in these communities when I just have to, I find myself having to put on a different a different hat. You know, the, the Western psychiatry hat only goes so far. Um, <laughs> and then you have to just think of it through a different lens um, and have these these two kind of these two viewpoints in my experience. I think one of the beauties of, of doing this work and, and um, doing this research is seeing how complementary the two can be. Um, and we, you know, we spoke about the importance of preparation and integration previously. And, and I think that's a really, um, that's a really good example. Ayahuasca is, is fantastic, um, but so is psychotherapy you know, and psychology. And when you combine the two together, then you get something amazing. And it's not to say that, that any one of them is lacking, especially not the, the indigenous point of view, because I think that there's a lot of informal preparation, integration and psychological support um, in the traditional indigenous way of, of using ayahuasca, because you can just talk to the curanderos and speak to other people. And it's, you know, it's more... Um, it's more official in the Western point of view. Um, but I think especially as we, we move forward with research and trying to bridge this gap between Western and Indigenous medicine, it's not a case of which one is better. I think they both have their strong points and they both have their weak points. 
but as always we're by far the strongest when we work together Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there are really amazing ways that we can do that like the combination of psychotherapy uh, preparation and integration with ayahuasca ceremonies so from your conversations that you've had with Shipibos, uh, have you noticed, like, what's the narrative around the role that Ikaros play and the music and the songs play in ceremony? Mm-hmm. So from the conversations that I've had, in my understanding, they are, they're everything. They they guide the ceremony. So the Ikaros are the, uh, the shamanic songs, the shamanic chants, and that's um, that the Kurindara sings um, during the ceremony. And they're used uh, to connect with the spirit world, um, to channel um, energy through participants, um, to call in uh, spirit healers and to remove blockages amongst other things, um, energetic blockages in participants. And it seems to be that they are, that they're crucial. Um, and like we said before, I think that the chemicals in ayahuasca are incredible by themselves, um, absolutely, and you could probably still get quite a lot of healing through that. Um, but it's like having an orchestra without a conductor. It's the the curandero that uses the echoes in order to um, to, to utilize the medicine uh, and to to get the most amount of healing for the participants. Mm, mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself to be a leader in the space? Um, no. <laughs> no i don't i consider myself to be very lucky that i've ended up um in this situation um but i'm still very much learning on on all accounts um both in terms of uh, the traditional medicine and also in terms of also in terms of research um but having said that i do think it's an important role you know i think it, it's a real it's a real privilege. It's a real honor um, to do research into this area. Um, and even though you know, I might not perceive myself as a leader, I do think that, you know, that doesn't make me take the role any less seriously. I think it's um, it's an important role, um, which carries a fair amount, a fair amount of responsibility to do this work in the right way, to do it in an ethical way. Um, to make sure that Indigenous communities are, are properly um, supported in terms of reciprocity um, and that the research is of a high quality um, to try and help as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. When you're working with the medicine, do you have visions about the work that you're doing or do you get like aha moments or insights while you're journeying of like, oh, this is where the research should go? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that. I'd be lying if I hadn't said that I've had um, quite a few times where the ceremony finishes and then uh, myself and there, there's three of us who do the research together, the core team, uh, Nigel Nesband, who I mentioned before, and Wai Fong Sang, who's another psychologist and we're all at King's, uh, King's College London. And um, there are definitely times where we've all... Um, after the ceremonies kind of sat down and had uh, quite enthusiastic brainstorms about the way that we could, could take the research uh, moving forward. Um, so yeah, it definitely, it definitely plays a role in, in the work that we do for sure. I love that. And do, would you say that um, working with plant medicines have made you more creative in your life? Maybe more creative. I've definitely found my voice in terms of singing in ceremonies. So I guess in in that sense, um, they have. I think there's 
research is um, there's a real art to research there's a real art to uh, to study designs coming up with the ideas for what you want to look at and i guess in terms of that it has in its own way maybe not maybe not the way that that most people would would experience that um but in a kind of a more a more scientific way um it most certainly has yeah um i want to put you on the hot seat for just one more moment before we wrap up this conversation <laughs> i could just i see that smile on your face <laughs> um okay so three words first three words you think about when you hear this term psychedelic leadership <laughs> that's interesting actually the first one that came into my mind was ego um and i think that's I think, you know, ego is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we we need ego in order to function. We like neuroticism. We don't want to get rid of it completely. <laughs> I think it's something that we have to be really, really careful of, um, especially as psychedelics are reaching the mainstream. Um, and I find myself having to, to check myself with this a lot as well. It's, you know, it's, it's really nice being able to kind of talk about these things on podcasts um, and, kind of, and give talks. And I think that doing that, you need to... And not just me, everyone needs to be needs to be really checking themselves um, when they're in any kind of leadership role. I can't remember who was it? Like there was someone, I think it was the president of Uruguay, said that before anyone's allowed to lead a country, he recommends that they should drink ayahuasca three times. <gasps> um, yeah, 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 yeah. I hope I've got that right. I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, and so I think that we do need to be checking in with ourselves, uh, checking in with other people that we trust uh, to make sure that we don't... Uh, don't get kind of swept away as it's so easily done as humans. Um, so, yeah. Okay. That was one. That was fine. Okay. Okay. Well, one more, at least one more. We got, well, you got one. this. <laughs> maybe it's because we've just been talking about it, but I think, um, I think creativity uh, really pops into my mind. And again, it's for, it's for a similar reason. One of the reasons that I love ayahuasca so much that I love psychedelics is they, they sit at this amazing cross section between so many different disciplines um and you see this when you you know we do podcasts like this or when you go to psychedelic conferences that it almost redefines multidisciplinary you know multidisciplinary to me previously meant doctors nurses occupational therapists and physios whereas multidisciplinary in the psychedelic world means doctors researchers artists lawyers historians musicians and there's something really really beautiful about being able to come at psychedelics and at research from any of these angles you know anthropology you know pharmacology and them all being really really valid so i think that when it comes to leadership uh, particularly psychedelic leadership there's this idea that we need to be creative and we need to be my third one will be inclusivity we need to be inclusive we need to include everyone um, and this goes for you know everyone from different cultures and mm -hmm. backgrounds, skill sets, because uh, everyone has something to offer. And this is a field where those offerings will be more than welcome. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, there we go, Laura Don. Those are my, okay. those are my three. <laughs> that was great. And so, um, what? okay, top three outside of the box tips for integration. Okay. Um, for me personally, um, number one would be meditation. Um, that's the... My kind of my number one um, tool for integration is is meditation. Do you have a style that you recommend? Um, so I actually I use this app called Headspace. Um, I know I the Headspace app. app. Mm -hmm. 
I know you did. <laughs> and it, um, it was just there's something about it that just made it so accessible. Um, I sound like I work for Headspace. I don't work for Headspace, but um, but it's it just kind of for somebody who has always had quite a racing mind. It allowed me to to get into Headspace, get into meditation in a way that you know without it, I find it quite difficult to um, to function now. You know, I'm really um, really really grateful for it. So yeah, meditation. Um, number two would be therapy. Um, I know I'm biased in, in kind of, of course I was going to suggest that, but I think that um, if you can find a decent therapist and they don't need to be somebody who's um, uh, has experience with psychedelics. In fact, sometimes I kind of feel that it might be better to have someone who is open, but doesn't necessarily have a relationship with ayahuasca. So it's quite easy to, I find, to kind of to blame everything on ayahuasca. Um, <laughs> there's something, in my own personal experience, but there's, um, there's something really, um, yeah, really beneficial, I think, about having someone, of course, who's open, um, but a therapist that can, that can help you to make sense of the experience that you've had and make sense of yourself. And my third one is going to be is going to be having some isolation, having some time by yourself. Um, take your time, take your time to let the dust settle. Because if your experiences are anything like mine, and pretty much everyone else that I've ever spoken to, you're going to be going through some pretty heavy stuff. There's going to be some stuff that's brought to the surface that's that's going to take some time. Um, you need to let the dust settle. It gives you time to figure out what the experience has meant to you. And also it stops you from doing anything stupid like selling your house and building a pyramid that falls into a river as I once heard <laughs> after an ayahuasca experience. Um, so, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I was surprised to hear you say a therapist who doesn't work with ayahuasca. I would have thought you would have said a therapist that does work with ayahuasca. So that's interesting. I think both are good. I'm okay. just, I think um, having someone who's open is really important, but I don't think they necessarily have to be someone who works with ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be some merit of not doing that. Is there a question that I just didn't ask you that you have this like burning desire to respond to? <laughs> I I don't think so. No, I'm and, just super grateful we got to do this again. <laughs> and you totally blew the 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 part, my punchline. You you blew my punchline on the what was the most surprising finding from the research? You like slipped it in there. You're like, well, this this was the research, and it was very unsurprising. But I was, and, and which it is interesting that like you know, of course, there's healing potential of these plant medicines, and that we're we're and it's so interesting that we sort of have to like validate indigenous wisdom from a science perspective how do you feel about that well the way that i see it um and the way that i see it, a lot of the research that we do is uh it's basically translation um and yeah and like we said before when you asked if there was anything what was the most surprising finding from the research and i said nothing i mean and it's funny but it is true you know no one it's not groundbreaking news that ayahuasca helps with depression and anxiety and improves your levels of self-compassion it's not groundbreaking news that ayahuasca you know improve them um, uh, makes you less neurotic or more open i think what it is more is it's almost like translation uh, so people who have experience with ayahuasca or kind of you know are more inclined to be in this kind of world probably have a fairly good idea um, how these studies are going to pan out it's it's other people like the scientific community um, that 
you know, for no fault of their own, will respond a lot better to numbers and graphs and to data and statistics um, than to various anecdotal reports of people running off to the jungle. And so I think that the research is important for you know, a wide variety of reasons. Um, but one of the main ones is, is this translation, you know, kind of translational psychiatry. So that other people, for no fault of their own, that, um, wouldn't have access to this information, can access it in a way that makes sense to them Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can maybe even get benefits for themselves or for other people uh, as a result. Mm-hmm. Biggest benefits that you've received in your life from ayahuasca? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I I actually get asked this a fair amount of, as uh, can normally kind of phrase in the question and how has how has ayahuasca changed you? You know, what what kind of an effect have you have you noticed in your own life? And I always used to answer that kind of saying, oh, you know, not, not really that much, you know, I kind of, I'm still, I think I'm still pretty similar until somebody pointed out, haven't you just devoted the last six years to researching this uh, and I kind of continuing to do so now. Um, and so it has, it has had a massive impact on my life uh, in terms of completely changing um, my focus there and my energy. Um, yeah. And, and my passion, I guess. I want to dig deeper there. Like not just your work. I mean, come on. Even just like talking to you last week versus this week, you know? Mm-mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Without like see. you know going into all the personal details of what you did between last <laughs> week and this week, but people can read between <laughs> the lines of what might have happened over the weekend between last week and this week. But you know, and just the levity in in your voice, and you know, it's amazing to just witness the way that this medicine can support us in shifting our perception of reality. Mm-mm. For sure, you know, I think there are. Like you've alluded to, I've found ayahuasca to be extremely beneficial for um, for healing trauma, um, for uh, helping get things in perspective. It almost feels kind of like, for me personally, it can be a bit of a spring clean in the mind mm-hmm. you know, if, with the appropriate preparation and integration. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I noticed, again, this is just my own personal experiences, and I'm sure many other people have had this too, is that it really helped my concentration. Um, I yeah, Concentration was always something that I would find fairly difficult um, and it made med school uh, slightly challenging having such a short attention span um but i found that it, it really helped me to focus as well and that's that's an interesting thing in mm. itself um so there we go there's a there's a couple of more personal okay. things from your i like i like the spring cleaning for the mind i really just i like that analogy a lot and i feel like it's like spring cleaning for the body too it's just like clearing those channels feeling that lightness um, mm. are you okay with me keeping that in there? Or was that too much personal information yeah. to share? No, that's totally fine. Okay. Okay. Cause I want to respect your privacy and your, your, yeah, your cool. personal reality, especially as a researcher and the doctor that you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's so interesting in this world that we live in where we're just in this like gap between legalization and we do have to be so careful about what we say. And, you know, I speak on a lot of other podcasts as well. And I also have to be so careful about what I'm sharing and I'm pretty open about my, my own personal experience, but it's, it is real, but you have, you know, a license to be concerned about. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, you know, I think we do have to be careful. I think times are changing, but I think there is a risk of 
of stunting the movement too. Um, I think it's particularly important in research um, and also and also with legality. Um, I think as per usual, it's a real mix of balance, isn't it? It's the balance between um, not shying away from the benefits that it can have because the start of, of most science is anecdotal evidence, you know, as anecdotal reports. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, we don't want to to scare people we don't want to uh, uh, to put people off and we don't want to stunt which ho- what hopefully will be um a really a really great movement uh, that will continue and a lot and hopefully with lots of healing for people that otherwise wouldn't have access to it right yeah is there anything you want to close on parting words of wisdom from simon ruffle Parting words of wisdom. <laughs> um, I, you know what? I'm not sure that I have any. Um, I actually, uh, I can tell you, I can tell you what my curandera told me the last time I saw them, which was a little while ago. They said, "Remember, no matter what happens, always have joy and never take yourself too seriously." Well. Oh, I I second that motion. I think that's great <laughs> advice. You're very humble, Simon. You're, you have a lot of humility and I appreciate that about you and the work that you do. And that's why you're in such a good position to really influence big change. And I definitely see you as a leader in this space. So thank you for the work that you do. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's good to, good to connect again. Again. <laughs> Well, maybe we should drink more medicine and become a little less neurotic on the on the takeovers. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think that would take a while and probably quite a lot more hours. But that's fine <laughs> for me too. That's- yeah, and I would say though that it's really been invoking a lot more levity in my life as well. You know, just I mean, I think there is some place of like okay, perfectionism of like just having a high standard and like really wanting to do. Um, you know, a good job. And then there is that place where it's like debilitating and then that's not helpful. So just bringing in the humor and the laughter and even just laughing at that and, and the neuroticism inherent in that is actually quite funny. So invoking the sacred goofball is what I'm really talking about here. <laughs> I like that as a concept. And it's like what we were talking about before, you know, when you, again, in my own personal experience working with Shabibo Karanderos, they find everything hilarious. Oh, you know, know, if you go through, go through a really, a really difficult experience, you know, you kind of, uh, see the funny side, you know, yeah. don't take it so seriously. That's not to say that they're not empathetic and they're not kind. They, they're some of the most empathetic and kind people that, that I've met, for sure. But there's also this, uh, yeah, not taking anything too seriously. Not Don't take it, don't take it quite so, don't take yourself quite so seriously. Right, yeah, as I was saying before we hopped on, you know, when I spent a, a month in the jungle with this Shipibo grandmother, I cracked up so fucking much that whole month. Like everything was just so funny, just like witnessing just the the sheer comedy of this, this work on a certain level. I mean, it's, it is serious and it's deep and it's super transformative. And then there's also these moments like even in ceremony where I was just cracking up like it's just the yeah the yeah the sheer hilarity at what what we're doing on this planet here right now is is also has a lot of humor in it yeah yeah for sure for sure and it's really releasing when you can remember that really liberating yeah totally all right Simon so so sweet dropping in with you brother yeah really good to see you as usual and Thanks for having me. Speak yeah. soon. Sweet. We'll talk soon. Aloha.
Bye. Hi, friend. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, I would so appreciate it if you could share it with a friend or share one of your favorite episodes on social media. If you feel really inspired, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a review on iTunes. And if you're on Instagram, feel free to take a snapshot of your review and send me a DM at LiveFreeLauraD. And every Saturday, I'm doing shout outs for people's accounts who are leaving me reviews. So if you feel inspired, I'd be happy to give you a shout out in my stories as a thank you for leaving me a review. And if you'd like to be in touch with me, please feel free to send me an email through my website at livefreelauraD.com. All right, I'm going to leave you with this beautiful song by Puentes off their new album, Americua, and it's called Cantataita. It's such a beautiful song. Their whole album is just gorgeous. I highly recommend checking it out by Puentes. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time.
Kaya.